Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. He's the co-founder of the Lyon restaurant chain and the Sustainable Restaurant Association. In 2013, he co-authored the School Food Plan. It set out actions to transform not only what our children eat, but also what they learn about food in school. In 2021, he published his government-commissioned National Food Strategy. It extended the eligibility for free school meals. It looked at a sugar and salt tax, food and activities programs for young people during the long summer holidays. His new book, Ravenous, there's a copy of it here and there'll be copies outside afterwards, cast the net beyond our schools to the whole globe. It's described as a plan to get ourselves and our planet into shape. Please welcome Henry Dimbleby. Henry, you describe the food industry as sustaining us and also killing us. What do you mean? So the, the, the book, incidentally, is when we did the food strategy, we, I, I, I wrote the book with my wife, who, out of the goodness of her own heart, also edited the food strategy as a journalist. And as soon as we published the food strategy, we thought, we've got to turn this into a book, because no one's sane is going to... Is going to um, is going to download a government strategy from a website and read it. And actually, the, I- <laughs> the, the ideas are really important. And the kind of central theme of it is that the food system that we have is deeply dysfunctional. Um, it, it sustains us, but it is uh, by far the largest cause of non-communicable disease. By 2035, um, it's projected that Type 2 diabetes alone is going to cost the NHS what treating all cancers does today. Chris Whitty was, during lockdown, was making lectures online in his spare time about the problems that diet was going to cause to the NHS. Uh, it's, and, and Andy Haldane, actually, the, the, the CEO of the RSA, former Bank of England chief economist, made a speech a few weeks ago saying it was non-communicable disease was the biggest draw on GDP. So this system uh, is sustaining us, but it is making us sick and impoverished. And that goes, that doesn't even mention the fact that it is the biggest cause by far of biodiversity destruction. It is the biggest cause of freshwater pollution, of freshwater scarcity, of deforestation, uh, and after energy, it's the second biggest cause of climate change. So we need to fix it mm. if we are going to have uh, a sustainable, if we're going to protect our environment and protect our health. How do we get here? In, in the early chapters of the book, you talk about the fact that it was actually a moment of change, a very exciting moment about generating better crops that has actually led us to this point. Would you just explain to our audience what, what happened? Sure. I mean, we start the book because it's kind of important to understand like what went wrong. Uh, and the thing that caused the problems was actually one of the great uh, feats of human ingenuity. After the Second World War, we projected that the population of the planet was going to go from 2.5 to 8 billion. Uh, in the 12,000 years leading up to that, every time the human population had grown, we just dug up more land to plant more crops. Mm. And the scientists pointed out that we were going to run out of land. We dug up all the land. And so if you go back to the newspapers of the late... 40s, early 50s, they are full of these projections of malthusian collapse, starvation, the, you know, the, the human race had run out of road. 
but the scientists hadn't reckoned on a man called Norman Borlaug. We, we say in the book that uh, if, if there was a biopic of Borlaug's life, he would be played by Jimmy Stewart. He was kind of had uh, good, good square jaw and all-American teeth. Um, but there hasn't been a, a biopic of him because you don't get famous for stopping something happening. And what he did was, he in, in Mexico, towards the end of the war, he bred a new form of wheat, which was, had much higher yielding. Uh, he'd crossed it with a short-stemmed Japanese wheat, which meant that these big heads, when the wind blew, uh, didn't get knocked over and the crop destroyed. And when that wheat was combined with nitrogen fertilizer from the Harvard-Bosch process uh, and new methods of irrigation, uh, it, uh, it, it produced huge yields. And that was repeated for maize and for rice in what ironically became known as the Green Revolution because it actually was the primary thing that destroy, has destroyed our environment. But we now produce almost two times the number of calories uh, from per person on the planet than we did back then. And we have 8 billion people not 2.5 billion, and from actually slightly less land, because mm. when the Soviet Union collapsed, a whole load of marginal land came out of production. So it's an incredible, incredible success story. Mm. But what it has produced is huge quantities. The cheapest calories now are um, refined carbohydrates, refined vegetable fats, and refined sugar. And 85% of the products that processed food companies make are deemed, basically are different uh, versions of packaging those up, adding as little real food as possible yeah. and selling them to us. And 85% of those portfolios are full of food that is bad for us. So it's, it's, it's been a, an unwitting disaster. People like to blame other people for being too fat. We do. We're cruel to other people who are overweight. And we like to think, a lot of us, I think that it is down to a lack of willpower and a lack of exercise. Yeah. In your book, you challenge that very robustly. Um, you're talking about an obesogenic culture, really, aren't you? Saying that we think we're making our own choices when we're not. Can you explain to people why it isn't their own fault if they're too fat? Yeah, I start the chapter, actually, on describing this with my daughter, Dory, one morning, morning looming over me when she was about seven years old and saying, Daddy... Were you always this chubby, even when you, <laughs> even when you were young? It was a slightly bruising start to the day. Um, uh, so, so basically, the the, the foods I've described, there is a, there's a, a what's called a reinforcing feedback loop going on. Our, our appetite evolved at a time when calories were scarce, and the kind of food that I just described. Uh, which is high in sugar, salt, and fat. Processed food actually has those things in ratios that don't tend to exist in food cooked from scratch. They give you an intense dopamine hit. Uh, and if they are uh, low in insoluble fiber, low in water, funnily enough, soft, you eat them faster and you get full less quickly. Mm -hmm. And food companies have spotted this, uh, and they've spent more and more investing in producing that kind of stuff. We've eaten more, they spent more, we've eaten more, they spent mm. more, and we have got fat. And if you have, it's really interesting, if you look at the bell curve of weight, what you, it's kind of been moving steadily to the right as, as a population we've got heavier. One percent of people were 
obese in 1950 and 28% of people are obese now. That's not to do with a huge collapse of willpower. That is because this diet is sucking us to the right. And you actually see there's a tongue now that extends. So some people mm. have appetites that, are really, that really struggle with this kind of thing. And I, I always say to people, like, if you... You know, if you think you are thin, that's some kind of moral virtue. Just imagine what it would feel like if you felt at your hungriest, like as if you hadn't eaten for a day all the time, because that is, for some people, that their, their appetite has dysfunctioned. Now, that doesn't mean to say there's nothing you can do. You know, I, I kind of like to think we live in a swamp, and fundamentally that's not a healthy place to live, and we should try and improve the environment but in the meantime, we should be pe teaching people swamp craft. You know, we should, you can still help, you know, make it a bit better. And for example, people who are struggling, the thing I would say to them is try and manage your appetite. Don't count calories. Mm. Eat things that will fill you up. So highly fibrous things, uh, you know, vegetables. Don't eat too much. Don't eat any processed food if you can avoid it, but cut down on it. So you can do stuff. And the other thing is, you know, you mentioned exercise. There was a, when Boris Johnson, the last thing that was delayed before the bog offs were delayed yesterday. I'm wondering today. when Boris Johnson would get a mention yeah, today. So, <laughs> so Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson uh, came out of hospital thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm sick because I'm, I, I weigh too much. And he then said, right, we're going to ban advertising on junk food to kids, which is an incredibly popular policy. We're going to ban bog off some unhealthy food, which is a less popular policy. And then the next person in the room said, no, you shouldn't do that. So, you know, one of Boris Johnson's great talents was always doing what the person in the room with him at the time wanted. Uh, and so he, he delayed the advertising ban. Mm. And the Sun newspaper, when he did this, said, this is, the you know, Sun says, this is, you know, a return to common sense, away from these nannying principles. What we need is education and exercise. And the corollary of that, or, or both of those things are provably untrue. And the corollary is, if you are sick, it's your own fault yeah. for being uh, dissolute and uh, lazy. But the exercise thing is particularly interesting. So there's a, a new way of measuring energy expenditure, which has become much cheaper recently, which is called the doubly labelled water method, where you get water with uh, some heavy hydrogen, heavy oxygen in it. And you can tell by measuring how that dissipates exactly how much energy people have spent. You used to have to put them in a hood because you had to measure the carbon dioxide. Mm. So you couldn't, you couldn't measure what people were doing during the day. And the fascinating thing is that when you measure um, hunter-gatherers, when you measure sedentary people from Chicago, if you measure... Um, indigenous people in the Amazon who go from living in the Amazon to moving to towns, we all burn pretty much the same amount of energy on a population level. So what happens when you go to the gym, when you exercise, is that you're, rather than that being additive, uh, so you don't add those calories yes. to it, your body spends less energy elsewhere. So exercise is fantastic. It's about the healthiest thing that you can do but it is lousy at making you lose, lose weight. weight. And, and we tell people it'll make you lose weight. They go to the gym, they don't lose weight. They become disillusioned. And, and they come get disillusioned. Mm. Like the, the single thing they can yeah. do to be healthier, and they, they become disillusioned.
So what is the answer? Because there's an awful lot of conversations at the moment about drugging people into mm -hmm. losing weight, which seems a pretty radical solution. Where are you on that? So it's interesting, Boris Johnson again, his first, <laughs> <laughs> his first column for the Daily Mail, which everyone was waiting you know, for, with bated breath for, was about the fact that he had taken this drug. So there is uh, a drug called uh, semaglutide, which uh, mimics the action of GLP-1, which is a, a hormone that's released from your intestine when you eat that makes you feel full. It's a satiety hormone. And it is remarkably effective at stopping you eating. So I've got a friend, actually, who's on it. She's been on it for three years, and she says, you know, this, is, this has changed my life. I've, all my life, I've had a horrible relationship with food, and food doesn't taste quite as nice, but, you know, it's been really good for me. Boris Johnson had what quite a lot of people had. He got very nauseous from it, which is what happens to some people. And now in America, in America the... The first people to start taking it were Hollywood actors, obviously. Uh, and there's now a report of a thing called Wagovi Face, which is, the, the, Wagovi is the brand name for this thing, which is, it, make, it, makes, you look, it makes your face sag. So all of the uh, plastic <laughs> surgeons in Hollywood yeah, are like, so, so the question is, is, is this a good way to treat the problem? And the answer, you know, I said it was this feedback loop between mm. body and appetite and commercial incentives. And in the food strategy, we attacked the commercial incentives. We, we said you should do things that make it less attractive to sell this food. Clearly, you can also hack the body. And if you have a BMI of 35, 40, kind of severely obese, and it's been miserable, I would say go to, the, mm. go to your GP, ask them about this, because it might be the thing that changed your life. But if you talk to any doctors about it, they say that there are two big problems with this. The first is that, as we've seen with the vaccine, any drug that you test on thousands of people and then give to millions of people, Steve Barclay has uh, asked for advice on how much it would cost to get, give 12 million people in our population this drug. Uh, he's the health secretary at the moment. Um, if you do that, you will find tail effects. Yeah. So there will be side effects, whether it's will go be face or something else. And those might frighten off the very people that actually mm. really need it. And then the other thing, which they say is even more worrying, is that um, you know, a bit like Borlaug solving, you know, Bor the problem Borlaug solved was how many calories can I produce from a square meter of land? I mean, he was optimizing for one thing. <clears throat> all of our hormones evolved by random mutation and selection. All of our hormones do multiple different things. So GLP-1 will do all sorts of different things. No one has taken this drug for more than about five years, so we have literally no idea what it's going to do down the line. So that is pretty frightening. So I think that you... I'm not against this... This, by the way, is the Prozac of these things. There are four or five already coming into us. There'll be more and more of this. So I'm not against them. I just think that, you know, as well as inoculating people against the swamp, some people who are particularly... You know, I, I think it doesn't mean we shouldn't try and clean up the environment. And funny enough, you know, if you go back, um, Tony Blair has been saying that if you, that when he banned the smoking stuff, so when he did those things, everyone told him that it was going to be, um, that everyone was going to hate it, that there was going to be massive backlash, mm. that the Red Wall wouldn't like it. But actually, things like banning advertising of junk food kids is unbelievably popular. And he said that when he went, you know, to the Red Wall after this, people were coming out from the street saying, oh, my God, you know, I can go on the bus. 
I can go into a restaurant again without stinking of smoke. It means your parents now, which they couldn't with us, would be able to know you were smoking, whereas we could just tell Good them point. we'd be on the bus, which must be tricky. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's, so I think there is definitely much more space mm. to move than, than people, people think. Before we take some questions from our audience, I just want to tilt the conversation back towards the environment, the place, the planet, because you talked mm -hmm. a lot about people here. Um, what is the impact that we are having on... I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a fascinating uh, diagram that looks at... And we measure wild animals by weight, don't we, as a concept of yeah. how much... how many wild animals there were pre-modern agriculture and how many there are now. Um, we haven't got a visual for this, so I don't know if you can best explain it, but the impact it, yeah. that this is having on, on the environment and particularly on wild animals, given that we've just had Hillary's conversation about wild isles. Yes, and, and funny enough, the man... So there were two feedback loops that we talk about in the strategy in the book. One is the junk food cycle, which I described. The other is the invisibility of nature, which was coined by uh, the cleverest man I've ever hugged. Uh, Sapatha Dasgupta, also the nicest man, and he is talking, I think, with Andy Haldane after us. So stay <laughs> for that, because he will, he will explain it. Uh, amazing, amazing man. But uh, so we use, as an example of how much our food system has overtaken the environment, we use the, the, the weight of all humans uh, and all of the animals that we breed to eat, about 80 billion animals a year we kill to eat, and then wild animals. And the animals that we rear to eat at any one time weigh twice as much as all humans and 20 times as much as all of the wild animals. Um, so we have, even since 1970 in this country, we have half the number of farmland birds than we did mm. in the 1970s. Now, we're wiping out... Uh, um, Tanya uh, has a, a, a way of describing it. I can't remember what it is. She's worked out in terms of people at something like wiping out the whole population of China and India and Australasia or something. And we've just completely destroyed others, other animals on this planet. Uh, but uh, the, the path will probably talk about it. But the, the good news is that uh, we don't actually in any way in any of the systems we use to measure human success, we scarcely value in the kind of the value of wildlife, of nature. Um, so it's not in your wallet, it's not in the balance sheet companies, mm. you don't, it's not in the way we calculate GDP. So we're effectively, our whole economic growth path of calculate is built on destroying nature because we don't get of any cost. In fact, it's worse than that, we, we subsidize the destruction of nature he estimates to the tune of $500 billion a year in subsidies to uh, ag intensive agriculture, fishing, and uh, energy companies, largely. So we're giving a negative. We're paying people mm. to destroy nature. So we shouldn't be surprised that we are consuming it at a huge rate. But the good news is that you can actually stop paying people, and, and you can give it a value. And I'm actually much more uh, optimistic uh, on, on, on our ability to, to, to bring nature back to our kind of, from the horrifically low levels it is, than I am on the health side, because I think there is mm. a, a well-understood, clear case. If you have time, uh, the 
economics of uh, biodiversity was a review that Path Daskupta did for Treasury. It's a stunning work. It's 600 pages long. And there is it, a summary version, isn't well, there? Well, so this is interesting. <laughs> so this is interesting. So initially, you could ask about this, but I'm told by the civil servants, initially said, no. Yeah, you have to read the whole thing. This is it. Well, you know, this is what it is. And then under great duress, he produced a summary version that's about 150 pages long. <laughs> and the civil servant said, no, 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 can you do it? Anyway, in the end, the civil servants produced a summary version. And I'm afraid to say that the 600-page version is absolute genius. And the summary produced by the civil servants isn't worth reading. So you're going to have to okay. go. <laughs> but it's worth it. You're going to have to go for the war and peace, because it really is an extraordinary piece of work. He actually calculates. It was the first time, because there's this, um, you know, there's, there's quite a debate about is it possible to, for GDP to grow forever? Or is it, you know, and people say, yes, it is, because we could have coal fusion, we could get infinite energy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But he does a calculation uh, which shows quite how much, we were, how mm. much more mm. efficient we have to get. There's like a mathematical calculation on various scenarios when we will become extinct. It's like brilliant. Um, but it's quite sobering. Basically, it was the first thing that I read that said, OK, we've, we, can't, we can't rely on cold fusion to save mm. us. Mm. Should we take some questions from our yes. audience? Gentleman in the black uh, short sleeve shirts. Just bring you the microphone. Hello. Oh, thank you very much. Um, I'm, I wonder about any international comparisons that you, you may have um, that you feel are, are doing things a little bit better or doing things the right way. Um, because personally speaking, I'm struck when I travel that it seems that other countries have a, a different cultural relationship to food, whether it be an appreciation for seasonality or the provenance uh, of how things grow, where they come from or how much things should really cost mm. in order for that to be sustainable for the growers as well as you know, for everyone else involved as well. So I'm just curious if there are any good yeah. examples. Who's you getting can it draw, right? Drop on. So, I mean, interestingly, we, we, we look at, there's a, a chapter in the book called The Power of Love, which is about culture and, and looking at cultures that have got it right. Almost all of them have done it. The state, actually, much more than you would think, has set that culture. But if you look on the health side, you know, we, we, we have about 57% of the food that we eat in this country is ultra-processed, versus if you look at the southern European states, that's in the kind of mid-teens. So we have a very... Germany's similar to us. We have a very different food culture. There's quite a strong argument that that probably began for us during the Industrial Revolution. So we, we went from... You know, in, in 1846, when the Corn Laws were repealed, we produced all of our food, pretty much. By the end of the 19th century, we were producing 30% of our food because we had basically moved our workforce into cities to make cloth, which we then sold abroad, and we, we bought our food. Actually, everyone thinks it's from the empire, but actually it was more um, South America and uh, a, bit, a bit from Canada. And Australia. Um, so we then, and then in the Boer War, the, 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 uh, the generals said that the privates who were turning up were just in terrible state. They were short and unhealthy. That's when we introduced free school meals uh, to kind of make our cannon fodder 
stronger. Um, and, and, and so, you know, we, but we can trace our decline right back to there. The people, the, the, the people who have done a really good job, the, the people who have become rich without becoming obese, are South Korea and Japan. And there are other Asian nations that haven't done this. And both, if you look, we, we give the example of Japan, it's really interesting. So we think of the Japanese food culture as being kind of just uniquely healthy and delicious. But actually, um, when they opened up to the world, again, at the end of the 19th century in the Meiji Restoration, uh, they had quite a poor diet. And the emperor saw that the, the Dutch were the first Europeans to trade with them, because the Dutch were the only people who would stand on the Bible while, while doing a, an oath, because the Japanese are very suspicious of people who are religious. And they saw the Dutch and the Chinese come in, and they were huge. And so the emperor said, right, we've got to change our food culture. He started eating red meat, which was taboo, and started talking about it. They brought nutritionists into the army and created a whole list of recipes for the army. And then those cooks, army cooks, went on radio. And so things that you think of as kind of typical Japanese dishes, katsu curry, for example, was taken, was a, was a British dish. It was fried chicken with curry sauce that was the British Navy used to have on their, on their boats from our time in, Presumably in India. Presumably to mask how rotten the chicken was by well, that point. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so it's completely... Cr and then and, and Japan has carried on doing that. They now, they have, I mean, it's causing problems. They have, they, they have a very protectionist agricultural policy to produce things, which means they import a lot of food, and actually they don't have enough workers. Their farms are getting very old. They, uh, all the schools have proper cooked school lunch every day, the children feed each other. And then if you're in a business, <coughs> you get weighed every year. And if you are by your <laughs> employer, uh, and if you are, you know, over a certain weight, you get put on a, a, a management programme. But they have 4% obesity, so it seems to work. So Evans. you can, yes. There are very different cultures. They are created by the state, and we have this problem in this you know, I'm not suggesting that we all be weighed. Maybe we can have a pressure pad so you don't know you're being weighed <laughs> as you walk into the office. But so, so we have this problem, we have this kind of thing, relationship with the nanny state in this country, very laissez-faire thing. The, the Labour Party actually are wor worried, why, why Tony Blair was talking about it, they're worried as well about the Red Wall. So we need to overcome that and actually Intervention, the, the politicians have said before, behind mm. the, the public on intervention, the public want more And behind some of, some of the industry we were just talking before we came on yeah. stage, weren't we? Yes, that I mean, that, yeah, so that, that was extraordinary. The, one of the, uh, Dan, the president of Danon on Monday went public. I, one of our recommendations was a salt and sugar reformulation tax. And she came publicly and said, we think we, this, we, we need this kind of intervention. So even the businesses now, some of them are, are mm. getting ahead of government. At risk of running over slightly, I don't feel it's fair to only have one so question. I'll, be, I'll answer this question shorter. <laughs> <next time. laughs> yes Lady at no the back, answers. just oh, hang yeah. on for the microphone. It's just coming to you now. Thank you. I'm Marla. Uh, I have a very concerning question about the, you've made some wonderful points about healthy eating. So I'm currently working with, on a programme for public health in Lambeth, and this is to do with healthy eating and activity, moving, sport, etc. So I had my a second one yesterday. It was a prototype for young people around from 8 to 19 years of age. Loved the food, healthy activities, etc. I work with surplus food, trying to access that to get 
that are to families uh, in need. But we have this cost of living crisis. And I think people are struggling. They want to eat healthy. I always encourage them to bulk up their food with grains and, and beans and, you know, proteins, anything that it's cheaper, but, but, you know, sustainable, and it'll fill the children up. They all want this, but they're finding they can't afford it. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. Anything we can do, I know it's a government issue, and it's to do with imports, climate change, agriculture. So, yes, so... That is, fundamentally, that's not a problem of the food system. It's an economic problem. So the latest free school meals numbers were published last week. 23.8% of our children uh, are eligible for free school meals. That means that a quarter of the people in a quarter of the children in the country live in a household that within the last two years has had a household income of less than £7,400. I mean, it's inconceivable... So, that is a problem, but we're not, you know, that is not going to be fixed anytime soon. And we argued strongly that you should take money from the reformulation tax to provide, in particular, good food and fruit and veg for those families. There's a thing called the, you might want to go and see it, the Alexander Rose charity. Do you know them? So, they're, they just, so they're giving uh, families who are living in poverty vouchers for fruit and veg to spend at local markets. And... The, the results have been astonishing. Um, the number of children eating five a day has gone from 7% to 64%. The parents are sleeping better, they're less anxious. When you talk to people in that situation, they feel very anxious about the fact that they're not providing the right diet for their children. But at the same time, they often say, you know, if they don't eat it, I can't give them... So it's not like us, where if our child doesn't eat the greens we can fill them up with something else. They, they, they need to buy something that, is, that they know the child will eat, and therefore having, being able to put a fruit bowl on is an incredibly, yeah. you know, that simple thing of having a fruit bowl on the table, which would have been seen like a, a, a massive um, extravagance, isn't there? So I think you do. Some people will argue, uh, it's an interesting policy, because both people both on the left and right don't like it for different reasons. So... Um, the right don't like it because they don't like giving people things, and the left don't like it because... Some people on the left don't like it because they think it is demeaning to give uh, fruit and veg and you should just give money, so, which I understand. But I, the, where we came out was there is just so much evidence to show it works, and diet-related ill health is particularly bad in people who are, who are living in, in poverty. That I, we, we, we took the thing that you can't be too ideological about it. Henry, thank you. I know there are more questions. I also I'm know... I'm going to be signing books outside. So He's going to be can, signing books outside. Um, I can talk. This is what you're looking for. The, we've got uh, books from a lot of our speakers here today, but Henry Dimbleby with Jemima Lewis, who I understand did all that work for free on the strategy. She did. And <laughs> she, did she did all that work free and for the... For Behind the, every good man the school food plan as well. <laughs> so she's finally got her... Although she complains about the size of the font that her name is in. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it for Jemima, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Book signings, as ever, more events going on all around the house. Um, please do find out about the workshops. You can very welcome to stay here and listen to the rest of the speakers. But this is not the only room with exciting things happening today. If you go two slides forward, you can see the, uh, the weight of the animals. One, two, there you go. That's, that's the beginning of the Holocene, so that's 2.5 million people and wild animals then 
and that is the weight of animals today. Henry Dimbleby. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.